This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. All right. So hello, everyone. For today's podcast, we are joined, I'm very happy to say, by Dr. Jochen Bühler, who is the temporary chair of Eastern European History at the Friedrich Schiller University in Jena. Um, Dr. Bühler has written a whole bunch of books, but the one that we're going to focus on today is one that we've already used for the Great War Channel. It is called Civil War in Central Europe, 1918 to 1921. And it was extremely useful for me when I was sort of trying to craft, in particular, the episode about the Polish-Ukrainian war that we published uh, last year. So, Dr. Bühler, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for, for having me here, Jesse. <clears throat> it's, it's Jochen. <laughs> Oh, yeah, okay, I suppose that's true. For, for the listeners, I was going all formal. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's get started in general. Now, normally, uh, when we think about this period and what a lot of our viewers who are familiar with the region might think about more is this is the period of the formation of nation-states, and that's kind of one of the dominant narratives but you chose to take a different approach. Um, so what is a civil war in Central Europe and what did that approach mean? No, uh, first of all, of course, I'm not um, uh, saying that this was not the period of the formation of nation states, because uh, obviously we know that this was the, uh, the period of the formation of nation states, especially in Central and um, Eastern Europe after the Great War. My proposition is to look at it from a different angle, meaning um, the period 1918 to 1921 has been described largely uh, in the past uh, from, from uh, different um, national historic, historic points of view. That means that every country that evolved in this area, in this period, has its own national narrative, which is usually very positive on, on the own side and negative on, on the side of the, of the enemies that had been fought to build that very nation state. And my approach is, I tell uh, people to look at it from a different side and see it as a struggle of everybody against everybody in that time, uh, because everybody wanted to have a nation state, right? So, and it uh, did not come for free, so it has to be fought for. And this turned into something that I call uh, a, a huge um, conflict that, that, that could be, with, with some uh, arguments that I make, uh, called rather a civil war, because these are um, citizens of former imperial um, um, structures that are now set free to form something different. But they had been 
um, co-citizens before and now they are fighting on different sides. And this is something that comes clear uh, near to a civil war scenario. And last point, from, from my uh, reading of the sources, I understand that most contemporaries uh, also saw it that way, especially in the areas that were contested. They saw it rather like a fratricidal conflict when neighbors were fighting neighbors than the glorious times of the building of their new national state. Okay, I mean, that fits um, in general, I think, along the lines that I've read in you know, historians like Timothy Snyder or Peter Judson or uh, Robert Gerwart. Um, how does that fit with, uh, I'd like to go maybe a little bit more into the um, national history side of things. So do you think that um, it would be, that there's any chance of your approach kind of challenging in a way these um, exclusive, let's say, uh, national narratives? What, what has been the reception of your of your work so far <clears throat> in those countries that it that it kind of is most relevant for i think that that my book um has the potential uh to to add some grayscale to the usually black and white pictures that had been painted in the respective countries that evolved in in that period immediately after the the great war so uh, as i as i said um the national narratives are quite um um, uh, uh, um, uh, very, very simple. Uh, let's put it like this: they, they, they tell stories, and you can exchange every nation. You can exchange Poles with Lithuanians, with Czechs, uh, with Ukrainians. They are talking about the effort, uh, mostly successful, but not always, of building the nation state as a kind of of a, almost religious mission that had to be accomplished as a right struggle against um, others that uh, did not want to let that happen. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fight of good against uh, bad. Let's put it like this. It's, it's like in a Western, yeah? And, and we as historians, we know that history normally is not um, black and white. So uh, you have some general settings, but uh, within it, you have a lot of, of, of gray zones. And this is what I'm, what I'm writing about especially if it comes to the to the people that have been living in that times that did not necessarily feel themselves uh, from the from the very first day of independence as the, as a new citizens of a national state they were first and foremost they were uh, people that had um, experienced uh, four years of war uh, and now they experienced a prolonged prolonged period of of ongoing um, suffering and conflict which for them was not necessarily something good but something that caused that that caused more problems yeah? and so what i see with my approach calling it a civil war as i know that it's a kind of provocative especially in those countries where these rather um national hagiographic um uh, uh, memories are are harvested and 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 uh, and, uh, and and put on on a pedestal um it, it, it can help people today understand how people in that times really lived 
felt and experienced those times. It was not all uh, marching in the streets for years and, 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 and waving flags and being happy for, for independence. It was also dying, suffering. It was losing property. It was, it was epidemics. And this is a conflict-ridden zone and time that had, um, in, in this um, detail, uh, I would argue, never been described, especially not as, as, a, as, a, as a conglomeration of conflicts that you can see with one perspective as part of a, of a, of a, of a, of a civil war scenario. So I can tell you from our experience, a lot of the um, YouTube episodes we've done about the post-1918 um, state formation and inter and, and conflict have uh, definitely caused a lot of reactions from amongst our viewers and quite a lot of them, uh, not all, but quite a lot of them are in the direction that you are describing. Um, and so I, I have to assume that um, that this narrative has, that this, let's say, traditional more black and white narrative has taken quite a strong uh, route. So it will be interesting to see um, if work like yours and perhaps some of the other historians I mentioned will one day uh, sort of filter itself into the public perception uh, in addition to the historians' discussions. Um, my next question, ah yes, my next question is, um, is related to one aspect of this uh, nation-state forming that you uh, discussed, and that is the role of paramilitary violence. Now, this is something that's also been written about by uh, Robert Gerva to a certain extent, and we've become quite interested in it as well at the, on the Great War Channel in particular, not exclusively, but in particular related to the Freikorps in Germany. But um, yeah, can you talk a bit about the role of uh, paramilitary violence in uh, Central Europe and how you felt that fit into, uh, into your approach? Of course. Um, first of all, um, I'm, a, I'm a big admirer of, of Robert Gerwald's work. And I would, I would uh, um, characterize myself as a, as a follower of, of his approach when uh, he has more or less uh, founded the research on, on uh, paramilitary violence in the wake of the, of the Great War. And I consider my book as being a, a contribution uh, to this to this broad uh, field of research, research that he has uh, instigated. Uh, so, and if we if we talk about the role of paramilitary violence, this is what makes the difference in my in my view um, uh, between uh, the period 1914 to 1918, and then the the following years 1918 to um, I, I make an end at, at 1921. So, of course, also during the Great War, we find um, uh, also uh, uh, certain periods of paramilitary violence, but I would rather call them exceptions than the rule. And in 1918, this uh, turns uh, to, the, to the other side. This is that, that uh, violence um, that is um, perpetrated in those civil war scenarios is, is typical civil war violence, which is paramilitary violence. And the first reason for this is that uh, while these new nation nation states are, are are building themselves, are forming themselves, we cannot speak of state armies yet. These are um, uh, military formations in the making, and they are first and foremost built up 
by um, deserters or demobilized soldiers of all kinds of, of other former armies that have now been put together, uh, sometimes well-equipped, uh, some, mostly not so well-equipped. And th at the beginning, uh, they more resemble uh, smaller detachments of bandits and, uh, and, and marauders than real um, organized state army structures. And this has an um, immediate impact on the kind of violence they perpetrate. And the other uh, reason for the violence getting more in this direction, paramilitary civil war violence, is that the enemy is not uh, described anymore um, solely as the, the soldier on the other side of the front line, but having competing nation states that are, comp com that are fighting not only for territory, but also for populations, and those nation states are defined ethnically. So, for example, a Polish state for ethnic Poles or a Ukrainian state for ethnic Ukrainians. However you define this, this is already a problem. Yeah, This makes the struggle a total struggle because now we are talking about uh, the enemy is the other ethnic group and not only the soldiers, but also his family, people in the, in the, in the countryside that makes it a civil war scenario because soldiers of all sides are committing crimes uh, against not only um, other soldiers or prisoners of war, but also against the civil population. And this has to do with the paramilitary um, um, uh, um, outfit of these, of these uh, military units involved. Uh, but also with the, the totality of the struggle because it's defined as an ethnic struggle and not, not anymore a political struggle between two clearly defined states and their soldiers. So a total war with limited means uh, sounds like a messy affair. Um, in terms of that civilian population, uh, can you tell us a little bit about if, if these groups are then defining uh, another group as the enemy, that would lead to the assumption that there are easily definable or separable groups. From what I've read thus far, I have the impression that identities and use of language and so on were perhaps more fluid than we might think looking back from a, a hundred years of nation state uh, lens later. How did that play in? What about people who had multiple identities or who were not um, fully on board, as you say, from the get-go with the nation-building project and who were hungry peasants with other priorities who might have had mixed identities? How does that all play into it? That is exactly the problem. Um, the conflicts um, of competing nation-states, where were they outplayed? Where, took, where were the conflicts really fought out? Well, they're in the borderlands, border exactly. In borderlands, yeah. So, and those borderlands, by definition, have mixed populations. And the, 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 the criteria of ethnicity was something new for those people. Of course, uh, people living in borderlands had a certain affiliation to a certain cultural, religious background. But it is, not, it is almost impossible in these areas, let's talk of the Kresis or of the eastern parts of Poland or the western parts of Ukraine and Russia, however you look at it, or look at the German-Polish borderlands, uh, Silesia, Upper Silesia, for example. You have people living there 
families with mixed marriages, uh, speaking two languages or one language with is um, uh, uh, similar to both neighboring languages, German and Polish or Polish and Ukrainian. So identities are not clearly fixed. And the, that is where the violence comes in. The violence, the paramilitary violence used in those post-war conflicts uh, serves not only uh, the goal for the for the individual soldier to enrich himself or the paramilitary, but it serves also it sends a message that that the violence is perpetrated against the other. So if you are a part of the civil population, if you can be a part of the group that is per perpetrating those violence, you say clearly, I am one of you, and so you protect yourself and your family. Uh, not to become the victim of violence, while the violence is displayed against others who are not able or not willing to join this community. And so the, the violence is not only um, uh, ego, um, motivated by, by, egoistic, by uh, egoistic motives, yeah? but, but also it's, it's, a, it's symbolic violence which, which helps to carve out nationalities. Yeah? So the nation-building process is almost always in history, a violent one. And why? By what? Because violence is part of those, this process of dividing uh, nations. It's not that I'm, that I'm um, uh, 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 speaking here in favor of violence and just stating that very fact. The violence is used to uh, discern us from them. So that makes me think, of course, of a theme that we've been uh, returning to time and time again on, on YouTube throughout many of our episodes, uh, and that is the idea from Wilson's 14 points, and then that, that plays a big role in the peace conference, of self-determination. Um, and how does that, from far off Paris, play out in this region because I remember from some of the research we've done you know there there are times when local authorities will try to use the principle of self-determination to gain advantages um, in terms of their relations with the peace conference and uh, each side of these conflicts seems to accuse the other of manipulating maps and providing Paris with fake maps ethnic maps that is and so on and so forth um, What's your take on, on self-determination coming from Paris? Did it play any role? Did it play no role? Was it a factor? Of course it was a factor. It was self-determination was a factor because the, 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 the agents of violence and, and the, the, the forming governments in Central and Eastern Europe, they knew very well that they needed to have arguments in Paris to convince um, the allies uh, of their uh, supposed right cause. So they knew the, the, the talk, they knew the language, they knew that they had to use um, self-determination as one of the major arguments. Other arguments would uh, be, for example, historic arguments to say this has always been our land, it had been taken from us unrightfully, so we just take back what is ours. Yeah, And the third argument would be a geopolitical one to say our state can only survive if we have access to that sea or if we have this mountain chain. So those are the three big arguments in Paris. 
this is self-determination, it is historical arguments, and it is uh, geopolitical arguments. And the first two are, are really hard to define, yeah, because you can, for, for any reason in a region in Europe, you can historically argue for that side or for that side because they have been changing hands for, for years, as, for, 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 for centuries, excuse me, for centuries. And, and of course, in that very region more than anywhere else. And the other thing is self-determination, um, which has been brought in by Wilson with his 14 points, but it has not been clearly defined. And let's remember that that Lenin and the Bolsheviks also talked about self-determination even before Wilson did. But they mean something completely different. What they meant was self-determination. It was a freeing of the, of the working class. It was an international approach. While Wilson's uh, fuzzy uh, and, and not clearly defined term self-determination could be used by anyone for, anyone for anything, anything almost by that time. And people mostly understood it as, a, as an ethnic criteria to say, we as the ethnic X, Y, Z, for example, example, ethnic Poles, ethnic Ukrainians, ethnic Lithuanians, ethnic Germans, ethnic Czechs, and so on. Um, we, have, we have the right for our self-determination within a national state, which we define as a national state for Germans, Poles, Ukrainians, Ukrainians, Lithuanians, Czechs. So they use self-determination and they use it in an exclusive way to say, we as this major ethnic group in this area have a right to our own nation state, independent nation state. And this is the argument they use in Paris. The problem is that in those conflicts, of course, all parties involved would argue with their right for self-determination. But in the borderlands, it does not work because the populations are, are mixed. So how can you tell somebody uh, of somebody living, living in those borderlands if he is has a right for self-determination in a Polish or in a Ukrainian state. First of all, you have to define and, and separate these populations, and this, this is an impossible task. So um, it seems uh, uh, only clear in Paris if they talk about, about self-determination, it's, it's too easy. Yeah? They, they think, oh, of course, they have the right for self-determination, but who? And who do, how do you, def do you define who has the right and who has not? Yeah. And and uh, the the uh, and the people and uh, the, the the governments, the forming governments in Central and Eastern Europe knew exactly about it. It was not that they that they had no clue and were just fighting. They knew about it and they used it used it as political arguments in Paris. It was just up to the whim of the Allies who was their favorite child and got more um, um, uh, attention for their cause than than the other. But everybody knew it and everybody used it. And we have. Um, dozens or hundreds of pamphlets written in this time from all parties invo involved in those conflicts where they were arguing for their right of self-determination and having their own nation state. Okay, what about groups that uh, didn't end up having a nation state? And uh, this is a question that I did not send in advance because it just came to me. So I'll give a little pause in case uh, we need to edit this out. But I'm always curious about the situation of the, I, as far as I know, the largest ethnic group that does not end up uh, with a state or is not in a position uh, to create a state, and that is the Jews, because this is their primary European homeland at the time. They're present in 
mostly in urban areas, I suppose, of uh, this entire region and all the future nation states. What is happening in Jewish communities? The, the question of self-determination for the Jews living in Central and Eastern Europe is um, a bit different from, from the situation of other ethnic groups. And that is because the Jewish population in that area is spread all over the place. You find them in, in Poland, you find them in Ukraine, um, especially um, in the former pale of, of, of settlement. Uh, you find them in Hungary. Um, it is the, the discussion, if we go, for example, for the, the situation of the Polish Jews, there is a discussion of self-determination, but this discussion is something that has two directions. Either it means a kind of autonomy within a Polish state. So there are um, uh, uh, Jewish um, um, uh, uh, politicians who are arguing, yes, we want to be part of a Polish uh, nation state, but it should be a, a nation state not only for ethnic Poles. And we as citizens of this Polish state, as Jewish citizens, should have the, um, um, the guarantee of certain special rights, which um, guarantee our autonomy, religious, cultural, within this state. You know, for example, that uh, if it comes to religious practices, that's the Sabbath, we don't work, and, and this kind of, 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 of uh, certain um, yeah, uh, special, special treatment. Um, and the other um, strong movement says, yeah, we want to have our own nation state, and it's not here. Yeah, this is the Zionist movement. Movement. We want to have it in Palestine. Yeah. So these are the political, both major political approaches of of Jews in this area. If they are not for assimilation. So in in reality, it does not so much matter what what Jews in Central and Eastern Europe uh, political agenda uh, they were following. If so, in practice. Um, they became the target of, of paramilitary violence um, everywhere, all over the place. They were the weakest um, uh, part of the, of the chain in, 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 in any region. They were, of course, strong in, in certain cities, but, but um, given the, the overall population, Jews were always a minority. And they have been scape, scapegoated, um, especially in the, in the atmosphere of, of anti-Bolshevik uh, hysteria, um, because of the revolution in, in Russia and the fear that it would spread farther westward. So what we find in Ukraine and in Poland and in Hungary, these are the, the, the main states where we, where we find it, is a, is a whole wave of anti-Semitic um, anti violence, of pogrom violence. It's um, the, the, the peak and the strongest it's in, in Ukraine, but it's also to be found in, uh, in Poland and it's also to be found in the counter-revolutionary um, uh, white movement in, in Hungary. So Jews are uh, targeted as, as victims, uh, Jews are murdered, uh, Jews are robbed. Um, uh, um, as this, they, they, they become one of the major targets of paramilitary violence in the time and this period we are speaking of. Okay. Um... Wow, it's just the more we discuss it, the more episodes we make on these topics and on this region, the messier it seems to get. Um, and that's, I think, one of the challenges in history generally, um, is trying to make something, a cohesive explanation from uh, a historical mess. And one of the tools is often periodization. 
And one of the things that we've, uh, frankly, in some ways struggled with, uh, with the Great War Channel is the periodization of the conflict. So traditionally, of course, it's 1914 to November 11th, 1918. And this is also kind of firmly anchored in the public consciousness and in some of the questions we get. Uh, some people were surprised that we decided to continue the channel with the same name, for example, uh, because, well, the war is over. But I think that your work uh, on Central Europe fits into some of the newer scholarship that we've seen that doesn't necessarily completely do away with the 1418 periodization, but maybe softens the end of it a bit. What are your thoughts about the uh, about that topic? Yeah, I think that, of course, we certainly should not do away with 1914 to 1918. Um, these are these are this is a clear periodization for for the for the global um, conflict that the that the, that the um, Great War was. Uh, but um, uh, the series where my book was published um, with Oxford University Press has uh, has the name the Greater War. So it it makes sense. Um, to look um, beyond this uh, periodization and to see what happened in the years before and the years after, because the violence did not set in from zero and it did not end immediately. Yeah. So, but but I still would vote for the periodization 1914 to 18 because what we find after 1918 is something different. It's the violence that is uh, that um, accompanying the revolutionary um, uh, turmoil in in Russia and in in some other states. And it's the violence that is accompanying the building of nation states. And as we have already discussed before, it is a rather different kind of violence. It is not anymore a conventional war. Um, to be to be uh, sure, the, the, the Great War was also not always uh, fought conventionally. There were also war crimes and uh, there was also targeting of, of parts of the civil population. But but I would, would still say, by and large, the Great War was still a, a, a war fought conventionally. And this is the dividing line between 1918, or, or let's say the end of 1917, if we take the revolutionary um, uh, motive in, into, into account, under account. Um, this, is, this is what divides the afterwar period from the war period, that now it gets, as you say, uh, rightly so, you say it's messy, it's getting more messy and, and it's getting more um, um, complicated. It's 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 uh, it's really um, it's, uh, the, the 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 violence is metering out in in, in many many ways and uh, it's hard for the historian to make sense of it and that's why why I propose the civil war approach uh, in in uh, in contrast uh, uh, contrast to to the the great war so I would say 1914 to 18 great war and it ends in November 1918 but with the with the new um, uh, powers coming into play now with the revolutionary power and the nation state powers and with the conflicts that they bring we have still uh, um, a period of, of, of uh, at least three years or even more where europe does not come to arrest and where fighting is going on but under different uh, with different goals and also with a different meaning the violence uh, gets uh, another it has, an, has another function now, as, as we were talking about violence being uh, symbolical, also violence to separate the one population from the other. Yeah, And also the paramilitary 
um, um, uh, character of, of these of these conflicts that the whole population is is uh, 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 is in danger then where, wherever um, uh, groups of armed men are in action and this is something different but still you cannot uh, disconnect it from the great war because it evolves from the great war so the great war officially ends in 1918 but it turns into something different which i would describe as a as a period of unrest that could be best described with with a civil war um, um term because all that we witness there the violence and and the, the the neighbors fighting neighbors is something that is absolutely typical for civil wars okay so uh, that seems like a good point that we can uh, that we can round off our discussion of the civil war in central europe book so I want to thank you for that, but I want to throw in, uh, let's call it a bit of a bonus question for our listeners, because uh, you've also published a book on a different topic, on the Waffen-SS, A European History. That's the title of the book that came out. And uh, some of our viewers are certainly going to be interested in that topic as well as the Great War, uh, perhaps in particular because we are also working on uh, a project about the Battle of Berlin, in which the Waffen-SS and foreign Waffen-SS units play a prominent role. So can you give our listeners a little taste of how you approached uh, that topic uh, as well? Yeah, of course, with pleasure. This is a, it's an edited volume that, that, that I have edited together with Robert Gerwart, um, who was also my mentor on the period that we were just talking about of the of the after war uh, after the great war period and um this is a this is a totally different project which deals with non-germans in the waffen ss it's an edited volume with uh, several chapters on on the respective regions of europe where um waffen ss uh, uh, soldiers were recruited sometimes uh, by force sometimes not and we are fighting for the Germans, not being Germans themselves. And this has uh, uh, been uh, tr uh, treated in the past um, rather, um, um, yeah, uh, cursory uh, by, by ac ac academy. So we have uh, some popular um, descriptions, some popular books on, on non-Germans in the Waffen-SS, but we have not so many uh, publications. It's, been, it's getting more now on uh, scientific uh, academic publications on this on this very topic, which is of course a very difficult topic, um, because um, uh, uh, people had been collaborating and fighting for the Germans who had committed heinous war crimes during the Second World War. And the book is not um, uh, is not uh, uh, making an excuse for this why why people fought for the Germans. The, the book tries to find out why. So. In, in different chapters that are, for example, the Baltic states or um, the Eastern Europe or Southeastern Europe or Western Europe or the Scandinavian countries, in every uh, every of those chapters, um, a team of authors that had been writing those chapters together address uh, vital questions, especially why did people decide if they decided and were not uh, uh, recruited by force to fight for the Germans, what were their motives and what were their experiences within those non-German Waffen SS unit? How were their relations to their German comrades? How have they been treated by German officers? Um, how did how how was the history of these units? 
did they decide to fight to the end or did they did they uh, desert uh, when they saw that the war is almost over and not to win so these are the questions that we are that that, that um, to put it better that our authors are addressing in those chapters and we have tried to make it a very cohesive volume so it's not just um, in our eyes we, we hope we manage to not just to publish um, uh, um, uh, very uh, unconnected series of articles, but these are chapters that merge together because they are always asking those same questions. Okay, Santa was good to me and brought me my very own copy of Waffen-SS European History, so I'm not through it yet, but um, okay. Thank you very much for all of that. That was uh, a wonderful discussion. Um, before we leave off, would you like to tell our viewers how they might be able to get their hands on these books of yours if they are now inspired to go more in depth after our discussion? Yes, of course, with pleasure. Thank you for that occasion. Both books have been uh, published by Oxford University Press, so they are easily to, to be spotted on their website, but they can, of course, also be bought by the usual channels, for example, on Amazon without any problem. Okay. Well, thank you once again, Jochen, uh, for joining us and for giving our uh, listeners the chance to um, kind of get up close and personal with some of the, I would say, cutting edge scholarship on these topics. So we appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for, for having me here and, uh, and for, for giving me the occasion to speak about those topics. Thank you very much.